I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Stephanie Boloris. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by Principal Analyst Lee Sostar and Senior Analyst Tracy Wu to discuss the risks and rewards of a multi-cloud strategy. Welcome both. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having me. So before we go deep into multi-cloud, I just want to pose this question around some definitions, right? We're talking about multi-cloud today. I've heard of hybrid cloud. Is this just marketers trying to carve out a separate space in the market for their products and services or solutions? Or are there palpable differences between these two things? Maybe we can just sort of level set and define before we go deep here. Well, we get a lot of questions about this, especially since I look at the hybrid cloud management market pretty closely. I'll get a lot of questions about hybrid cloud and there'll be there'll be questions about what is hybrid cloud? What is multi-cloud? What does that mean? Um, and there are a lot of different definitions out there. For, for instance, like NIST definition is one thing about ability to burst between two or more clouds for load balancing data and apps. There's a market de- definition, which is just cloud used with anything else. Um, and then, you know, modern terms is kind of just a reference to a mix of different deployment models. With multi-cloud, this is something where there actually is a distinction or a generally industry accepted distinction of multi-cloud is the use of multiple public cloud technologies. And some people will interchange them. Some people will say multi-cloud and hybrid cloud. Some people will say hybrid multi-cloud. That gets used a lot. And, and that's that's where you get into the sort of marketing term of we want a product that can encompass any possible need that you have. So you hear that a lot from vendors, especially ones that aren't hyperscalers, that are trying to carve out their own niche and carve out their own role within the industry. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, th- I think multi-cloud, you know, straightforwardly is you have two public cloud providers or more, and our Forrester research shows that more and more people are moving in that direction. We'll get onto why that is a little bit later, but for now on the question of definition, we often hear people talk about distributed cloud, which can usually be taken to mean all of the above, a hybrid model, a, a multi-cloud model, but increasingly the edge. Uh, the, the difficulty there is that it's a description, but it doesn't get you very far because cloud is on one hand hyper-centralized, but it's also distributed in terms of regions and availabilities and so forth. So you end up really back where you started. So we constantly find ourselves trying to break down what different people mean by that so we can better guide them to the kind of outcomes that they want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we hear a lot of distributed cloud from specific vendors that um, want to try to provide some differentiation in what they're doing, especially if they're bringing in those edge capabilities. But generally what I've been saying to clients, I don't know Lee, if, you, if you've been telling them a little bit differently, but that's it's really just marketing buzz, distributed cloud. You know, it, it doesn't have a lot of meaning behind it. And um, you really shouldn't be, you know, using this as something that's a gatekeeper to your strategy. Right. And- at the enterprise architecture level, that becomes the first place where you make that transition. So you start out, what is the end state that we want to be able to provide to people? Where are the capabilities and where? Because the question of 
what ends up being hybrid, what ends up being you know, edge really depends by industry, by size of company, by geography they're operating in. So once you break that down, then you can start to guide people towards the specifics that they need. And the challenge then becomes what level of maturity are the offerings in that given area? Where is the complexity going to land with you? Is there something you can do yourself? Is it something you need a systems integrator to help provide? Is it something you need to consume as a managed service? So you have the high-level architectures are easily grasped that you can map out where you want to go. The question of implementation becomes the challenge. So I guess what could be helpful then is to actually get into some examples of multi-cloud models that are in use today. And for each one, talk about why they're in use and why enterprises might have pursued them. Like you said, you know, what are your business needs? What do your enterprise what do your enterprise users want? The ones that we see most commonly are multiple clouds hosting different apps based on app characteristics. So this is where you use multiple cloud platforms for parts of your app portfolio. And this could be due to different strengths in each platform. So you get a lot of we are primarily, uh, I don't know, an AWS or Azure user, um, but we rely on, um, you know, GCP for its analytics, um, AI, ML capabilities, um, and that that's a really common c- scenario. Other things that you'll hear are where their the company is choosing to use cloud, and their developers actually prefer a specific area where they feel much stronger within a specific public cloud or they're comfortable with that or they came from a background. So the business will just uh, naturally gravitate towards that. And then there is um, the business user preference. So like if you have, um, there's actually a few different things. So it could be a partner base where you're working with an external third-party vendor and that's what they want you to do. So another thing is, is you know, coming from my last company, they had a major partnership with Microsoft. Um, a few of their business units were already using AWS, but they realized, well, we have this massive partnership with Microsoft. We need to help solidify it by migrating everything to Azure. And so to strengthen that partnership, that's what they were doing or that's what they're attempting to do. Um, the sourcing side of that, that's decided on an app-by-app basis. So you'll look at organizational users or characteristics and where they map to various services available if you're looking at specifically just the different strengths of each platform. Um, And then there's a lot of expediency that can be added by creating rules regarding characteristics of the app. So things that are particular to a specific app that might make it more suitable for a specific area. And it it doesn't necessarily have to be the strength of the public cloud in terms of who's deeper in functionality. It could also be who has better costs or who has a better pricing model for you. I think depending on you know where you are within your cloud journey and how mature you are within that area, um, one of those two approaches can be useful for you. But um, you know, creating a set of rules regarding how do you want to make that decision based on which app should go into which public cloud platform would be really helpful. Um, and you know, in this scenario, the the complexity is um, you know generally managed by the infrastructure team. They need to help curate the developer environment, however it is. And so, you know, doing so effectively means that the development of platform teams that can manage various different cloud infrastructure. So, you know, platform team as in someone that focuses specifically on a specific cloud environment um, and is providing services for that 
or um, uh, so you might have something where you're dividing up into an AWS platform team, you might have an Azure platform team, and that can really help with how you figure out which which cloud you need to be hosting, uh, which application. It, it almost seems like we're recreating a lot of the infrastructure specialization that we used to have on-prem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now we're just in cloud. Yeah. So when you hosted yeah. all of your compute and storage infrastructure on-prem, you would have architects and engineers and uh, other kinds of IT professionals who would be specialists in the various infrastructure from the, the major the major vendors. So I, I guess just a quick summary of what you said. So in many cases, it's, it's application-specific, and each of the major hyperscalers have a reputation or have, you know, specific features that lend themselves to certain applications, you know, whether it might mm -hmm. be high transaction, might be an analytical one, et cetera. Um, in some cases, what I heard you say too, is there's commercial considerations as well, just line of business owners that made their own decision or the organization itself um, has a commercial reason for why they might want to go with one vendor versus the other. Um, I'm curious how much has some of the, the various data protection regimes around the world also influence that decision because in some parts of the world, you have mm -hmm. very strict data privacy laws that won't allow the movement of data um, out of country, you know? So mm -hmm. we all love to talk about this ethereal cloud, but at the end of the day, it actually does physically exist somewhere. Um, and in some regions of the world, you can't move the data outside the country. So then it really does become, does the cloud provider actually have a physical presence where you're doing business in one of those, in one of those countries? Yeah, I, I think that is one of the drivers of multi-cloud by geography as well, uh, either by, you might have to use the same cloud provider, but it, completely di different geographies based on those same sorts of considerations. And I think that relates back to some of the wider constraints uh, around what Tracy was describing around multi-cloud, because there's the, the questions of applications, integrations all have their own logic, but overlaying all of that are a series of other considerations that then before you even get there. So you've got an inherited ad hoc or ad, uh, multi-cloud or inertia-driven multi-cloud, either by different geographies and of a given organization or different business units going different ways with providers or acquisitions. We see that a lot where you've suddenly inherited this and you have to figure out, is this something you want to handle at the level of, of in, you know, tight integration or a more loosely coupled management or simply just an overlay of cost management? There's a question of vendor uh, risk mitigation uh, which is often driven by some of the concerns you mentioned, Stephanie, in terms of data sovereignty and so forth, uh, regulatory authorities saying, you know, you have to have more than one cloud. Or in Britain, you have to have an exit, uh, a stress exit strategy. If you're a bank, doesn't necessarily have to go to another cloud. It might have to go back to a data center, but you have to have somewhere to go because you're critical infrastructure for the financial system. Therefore, you must have that. Then there's this question of workload affinity related to the application. Some of that will be at the application level. Some of it will be around one cloud is best known for analytics. Another cloud is best known for its um, office enabling characteristics or database or something of that sort. And then lastly, there's this question, I think what Tracy was getting at is optimization. For some narrow strata, there is a place where you need to optimize always on customer facing applications that would straddle public clouds. But I don't know what you think, Tracy. We don't see that much outside maybe the SaaS vendors. No, I don't. I don't see that as much. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up is that there's been a lot of concern about uh, data sovereignty, especially coming out of EMEA. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about that. So Germany is building a sovereign cloud where all of the infrastructure, all the data will stay, will reside within that country. 
France is doing something similar. Uh, I believe that the hyperscalers are helping them with it. So I think it's um, Azure and GCP respectively. Um, but you know, this is all kind of in response to what happened in 2018 with the U.S. Cloud Operations Act. Of they wanted the ability to, I don't know, in a sense, extradite data that was um, occurring outside of their country for potentially criminal cases, and that created a lot of concern for especially the Europeans when they were thinking, well, I don't necessarily want to give up my data. Um, this is this is not necessarily the U.S.'s concern or, or their um, ability to take. And so there have been a bunch of different initiatives that have come out of that to try to um, try to circumvent that. There's been GDPR, there's been GAIA-X, which has, um, you know, really been floundering and you've seen a lot of people kind of leaving from that, um, that area. Um, but then you've also seen some um, renewed reassurances that are coming out of the hyperscalers. So um, last year, I think in February and August, uh, at both AWS and Azure had said, we, we are already compliant with all of GDPR regulations. We will already serve the EU the best way that, um, that is regulated and possible to do so. Um, but this is our reassurance to you that if there is a, a time when they, we are requested data, we will challenge it if it is legally possible. This is AWS saying that. And if it is not possible to challenge it, we will provide the least amount of data possible. And so that wasn't something that they needed to say necessarily legally, but it was something that they needed to say to the market to help comfort them because there is a lot of concern about, well, cloud is mostly a North American US act right now. There's a bunch of public cloud players out there, but you know it's really uh, AWS and Azure that are kind of dominating the public cloud space right now. And there's a lot of concern about that, especially when it comes to different sorts of regulatory compliance concerns where they don't necessarily want data exiting specific regions. And that's something like Lee was saying before about financial services where um, that data can get really complicated if you are trying to transfer that across different countries. So a transaction that happens in France might have to have different considerations for something that happens in say the Netherlands. And they um, they need to take those sort of considerations into concern. I'm curious too, for the most part, we've talked about um, Azure, AWS, a little bit of GCP. Uh, as part of these multi-cloud strategies, is anybody deliberately considering hyperscaler plus a, like a tier two, I hate to call them tier two, but a more targeted uh, cloud provider? Someone who's offer, also offering managed services and consultative services in addition to some cloud some cloud services? We do see that. And the numbers may not make it into the big market share numbers that are typically reported. They often get relegated to the other category behind the hyperscalers. But there is a significant play, and it's actually related to the topic we were just on. Oracle has what they call dedicated region cloud at customer, which is essentially an Oracle-enabled cloud, but actually is built to adapt to some of the conditions that Tracy was laying out. So they're moving into parts of the world that have typically been slower to adopt the cloud where sovereignty has been a concern. So there's definitely a play there. And I would say that Oracle and IBM have an opportunity to bring forward some of their installed base of long-term enterprise clients into specific implementations, cloud versions of their services or modernized versions of mainframes in the, in the case of of IBM. So there's definitely an opportunity there. And one reason for that also is the fact that the hyperscalers have more or less 
won the race with each other or, or won the race against everybody else in terms of large scale investments, multi-region, uh, massive uh, scale for commodity infrastructure. So the differentiators now are increasingly going to be on things like AIML, database, data management, uh, industry clouds. So that's where some of these other players have an opportunity. Not, not that the hyperscalers will leave that unchallenged, but there is an opportunity. Are there local players to address the local market conditions that are cropping up? Yeah, there, there are a bunch of them. I think you have a bevy of different public cloud providers in Europe. Um, I don't know, OVH, Orange, um, to name a few. I know there, there's a bunch more that I can't think of. Um, in, in Asia, it's Huawei, Tencent, um, Alibaba, obviously. And um, there's been a lot of movement actually within that area too, or within China where they had data that was sitting on their Asian-based public cloud provider servers. And they're actually having that recalled and brought back, the government data recalled and brought back onto government data centers as well. So it's interesting because that culture is so much dominated in terms of what the government is doing, what the government is decreeing. And I kind of wonder how much of that is going to be influencing its other business as well. Yeah, further on the, on the question of independent players, OVH in Europe has made an arrangement with Google to sell a disconnected version of Google Anthos. And that gets around some of the concerns that Tracy was outlining that people have, that if you've got a sovereign data concern, you can have uh, capabilities uh, given to you by a U.S. cloud provider, but without that hook. So OVH is stepping in to be a provider of a disconnected Anthos. I think we will see, owing to geopolitical tensions, trade wars, um, and so forth, there will be a cloud nationalism. It's something we predicted in our cloud predictions for 2022. And increasingly, because of, of sanctions and various other considerations, you'll start to see a, a greater fragmentation between the Asian cloud, cloud provider market and that in North America and Europe, with Africa and the Middle East and Latin America being more in, in play uh, as, com as the competition plays out. That's not necessarily hard and fast. There will be players, it's not that the hyperscalers are going to pull out of, say, China tomorrow, but they may be increasingly compelled to operate under constraints that make them more and more distant from what the, say, US-based Amazon would be able to provide. So we have multi-cloud models driven by app-specific considerations, or like we mentioned, there's privacy considerations. Um, are, are there other models that we're that we're seeing? Yeah, I mean, there's so there's a few. Um, we also align multiple clouds that are hosting part of an app, app ecosystem. So I think the first one was looking at multiple clouds hosting different apps based on app characteristics. This is just different parts of the app ecosystem, or what we can call a hybrid app architecture. And where you're using multiple platforms, so this is both cloud and non-cloud, uh, due to maybe there's a specific service available, like we had mentioned before, um, avoiding escalation costs. So um, if you're using like data-heavy applications and you're worried about the cost of data egress, um, you know, for say like a high-performance or supercomputing type application or something that has a lot of big data, then um, you might actually want to host some of that, uh, the storage of that data for that application on premises or even for latency issues. And then that's also, um, you know, might be also a concern for required uh, regulation. So I think Canada has that sort of concern where they want that data actually hosted within data centers that are in Canada. And so that might happen 
either from a public cloud or if there's no data center within the region or availability zone that they need it in, then it might happen on premises as well. Um, and it's also maybe satisfying the preference of those accessing workloads. So the first two that we talked about, I think those are the most common. And then you have ones that are a little bit less common. So one cloud with multiple deployment options. So this is where you have something like, um, this is not multiple platforms of vendors, but multiple deployment environments with the same APIs. And this is uh, the case when you want the ability to choose where the environment where uh, where the environment lives is more important than say vendor flexibility. So for example, something like Azure with Azure Stack. I think that that's going to be an important area of development. We did uh, earlier this year, Charlie Dye and I co-authored the public cloud container platform wave, which was essentially an evaluation of these kinds of capabilities. We looked at what the cloud providers were doing, not in general, but where they were going with cloud native. And this element of a common API, being able to give multiple options, essentially giving you what you need to build your own platform and customize it was, was some of the key uh, findings that we had. Are there specific workloads or use cases for that deployment model? I think right now, some of the ones that Tracy has mentioned will be important where, where latency is a concern and people or data sovereignty for that matter. Like what do we need to keep on-prem and the ability to basically also contain the run rate that you might have in cloud and shipping data around, optimize the investments that you've already made. Yeah, and then there's the the last model that we look at is really multiple clouds being used simultaneously for a single app. Um, and this is very uncommon and very expensive. And so where you run the same app simultaneously, um, and this is like where you want to have like an active-active scenario where you can't afford to have any downtime at all. Um, and that requires building an app identically on two or more clouds uh, it can take a very long time to do that. It's very rare to do that. And it's also very expensive. So when people ask about that or ask about how common that is, that's what we say is uh, we generally try to dissuade people from actually doing that. And generally, it's really only ISVs that are delivering SaaS solutions to clients that are either very demanding, required to have continuous uptime. They're very opinionated in terms of how they want their application to, to be deployed. Um, they have an insane amount of money, um, and they're pretty inflexible in terms of what they want uh, out of their public clouds. Yeah. Although, interestingly enough, if you look on-prem and you look at disaster recovery architectures, more and more clients on-prem have moved to active-active configurations. And while it might seem expensive, if you compare it to the costs of maintaining like a warm or hot standby, you could argue active-active where you're both gaining performance scale and you've got a disaster recovery solution in place would actually be more cost effective. It can be more cost effective depending on what it is and how important it is because the cloud enables a lot of things that you can do, but you, but you have to be able to pay for them. And right. I think when you have a series of high profile outages that cluster together is what happened with AWS at the end of 2021, that's going to sensitize a lot of the biggest companies to say, maybe we should consider this after all because we can't afford to have any downtime. We don't want to have any dependencies. It, you know, and it makes sense because the cloud providers are stepping forward to inherit the world's technical debt. Uh, so all the problems of change management, all the problems of, of dependencies accrue to organizations that are so big that no one group or one team could easily disentangle them when something goes wrong. So to, if you have got an application that must always be on, 
and be available, say, big customer-facing applications, it may well be worth investing in this in order to mitigate that risk of downtime. I guess when we've talked so far about multi-cloud, in some cases, it hasn't necessarily been this this grand design, this grand strategic plan. Um, you know, business units have made independent decisions, individual application owners have made independent decisions, mergers, acquisitions, um, or you've been, you know, driven by um, data sovereignty issues. Um, have we seen companies, though, actually do it by design, do it deliberately? And what were the gains that they were specifically going after? Well, I think one of the things was, yes, you get a lot of what we call hybrid by accident or multi-cloud yeah. by accident. So there's, there's yeah. a lot of that, uh, oh, whoops, we're in four different platforms now. Um, but there are those, like we had said earlier on, which is they want to use a public cloud provider for a specific service. And so that's something where they actually build that in or they're um, less common now, but the fear of being locked into one cloud platform that they just very purposely choose to use two different platforms. And I think that's something that comes up with resiliency as well, right, Lee, where you're talking about uh, like a bank that needs to have um, an exit plan or the ability to move X amount of data in a certain amount of time, that they'll very purposely build that into their plan. Yeah. And one of the things that we see is that increasingly people are willing to pay twice for cloud infrastructure to get some kind of multi-cloud capabilities. And the, the multi-cloud container platform uh, market, uh, which includes uh, players like Red Hat with OpenShift, VMware's Tansu portfolio, Rancher, Mirantis, and others, provide a kind of a cloud neutral way to get to cloud native. And you can run it on any cloud. You can even run it on premises. And we see that as a way that people have used to, um, to mitigate the fragmentation that they have, both in terms of operations and development environments. It's not automatic. There's still a lot of work to do. You still have to decide how you're going to integrate with those various clouds, but at least you get a common denominator for a platform team for your SREs. And if you cur curate the development environment, you have a well understood ways of understanding how you want to extend Kubernetes, for example, to the operator environment. And that, that, decision to pay more than one player for core infrastructure is used to mitigate that risk of, of management complexity in exchange for having um, less vendor dependency. Even if you can't easily drag and drop, if you have the curated approach to application development around containers, you can start to shift workloads over time. So the, the multi-cloud container platform becomes a proxy for that. The cloud providers are coming back, as I mentioned earlier, with their own native ways of doing that and saying, look, you don't have to have that layer of complexity. We can deliver that out for you. Uh, to preserve that flexibility from one cloud vendor to another, the users then have to have a very judicious approach towards taking dependencies from those cloud services. Take them where it's worth it is what we advise, not to uh, take them on willy-nilly. Have a very tight focus around development with containers and understand that you know, you can't necessarily jump from one to the other immediately, but you do have the ability to move from one to another. We reference this a little bit sort of like multi-cloud by, by accident, right? Like, you know, maybe business units are making mm -hmm. decisions and there's not a lot of oversight here. But I, I think it would be helpful to get a crisp response on when do you take this approach? When is multi-cloud your strategy of choice? There's a few things and we've we've kind of gone over it a little bit, but maybe not iter iterated specifically, which is 
There might be resiliency needs. There might be specific platform application needs. Uh, developer preference, you, you um, acquired a company where you would use multi-cloud. Um, there's areas where your business or your partners are doing that. Um, and it may be, maybe just like what Lee was saying before about modernization initiatives. So there are specific areas where you don't want to be locked in. You want to be using uh, different public cloud platforms for different things. It might be fiscally more useful to be taking advantage of the different pricing options that you have for specific public cloud providers. And so I guess, you know, one of the other questions that comes up then is, um, all right, we've been using multi-cloud, but is there ever a scenario where you don't use multi-cloud? It's, it's not worth it. It's too complex. Um, and that's something that we come up with as well. And so uh, a few different things. So if it's too costly, uh, we've already brought this one up before, but things like cost with data egress. So that that's a big concern. Um, you know, if you are doing a lot of compute on the, uh, you know, in specific locations and you, you uh, maybe you're coming across regulatory compliance reasons, um, or uh, if you want it for latency reasons where you might want to just focus on a specific public cloud um, that might be an area where it may make more sense to keep all of your compute within one platform or one environment. Um, and then also it just might, might just be too complex. So if you're early on within your cloud journey, so if you're a vendor and you're early on and you're just thinking, well, okay, I've seen everyone use um, AWS Azure and I'm going to use another public cloud provider from a different area just to spice it up. I, we'd always say, start simple, Start with one public cloud provider um, that might help you actually go to market sooner and faster. I know that there are a few companies that have actually chosen to do that, where they've chosen to get locked into one vendor just to get to market sooner so that they can use those innovation services. So at the end of the day, it sounds like the most important thing is not to end up in multi-cloud by accident. You know, there's there could be some very good compelling reasons to be multi-cloud, whether that's because of data sovereignty, uh, compliance, application-specific requirements. Um, but there's some very good reasons why you would just want to stay with a single cloud as well. Yeah, but I, I would argue, and Lee, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that most people end up in there by accident. It's not necessarily a deliberate plan where they're thinking, this is our cloud strategy. We will deliberately go with these several public cloud providers. A lot of it ends up being like, Cloud is uh, treated as sort of an innovation or strategy initiative where you're you're giving one business unit some autonomy to go and explore that. Um, and then once you start to form that sort of exploration, you either have some developer or some partner or some company that you've acquired where all of a sudden you have, um, you know, different, different applications in different areas um, just based on maybe the strengths of your business partnerships or the strengths of your own developers. So is there guidance there, though, on like an annual basis or some sort of cadence where you're taking a step back and evaluating those partnerships or those relationships so that you're proactively managing the, these assets and not gathering things along the way, I guess? That's something that we always encourage. So you set a cloud strategy, but like any, like any good business, any good strategy, it needs to continuously evolve. You need to continuously recheck. Does it make sense? for my environment to look the way it does. And is the complexity 
of multi-cloud is managed well, perhaps, by the IT teams, it's still going to come at the procurement and vendor management teams and be quite you know, quite challenging at times. So having long-term contracts may mitigate some of that, but it risks missing out on some of the opportunities that might come about with other relationships. Great. Well, thank you both for joining us today. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or drop us a note at podcast at Thanks for listening.